All right, in this quick media Come Follow Me episode, we are covering 3 Nephi chapters 17 through 19. This will probably be a little bit shorter than we usually have. I apologize for the delay on this. Uh, I'm dealing with some health issues here that hopefully I can I can overcome in the near uh, the near future here. Um, but let's get into 17 here. Now I've been talking a little bit about hierarchy in this visit with Christ. Well, here in 17 through 19, it is hierarchy on steroids, right? It is if we see what Mormon is doing here. In, in bringing out the idea of everything coming out from the center from Christ and then going moving outward through the, the disciples, through the people, we have angels, etc. We see that there is this constant uh, reminder of, of hierarchy. It's, it's very obvious that Moron or that Mormon is is focused in on this, that he is writing it in this way. And perhaps this is the way that it did unfold, right? It's not just Mormon adapting this into a framework of hierarchy and priesthood and order, but this is how things work, right? This is how things work in the gospel. It's interesting we see in so many visions in the scriptures and other apocalyptic uh, uh, theophanies, right, and in, in, in apocalyptic literature we see this idea of this order that, that takes place with God in the midst of, of the disciples or in the midst of a concourses of angels. And you have uh, the vision of beasts that might be around the throne of God. All of that is based on a certain order, a certain hierarchy that is taking place. No different here in chapter 17 through 19 as we get the basically the the reinstitution of the sacrament along with baptism and the holy ghost this makes a lot of sense right that you would have those together there are two baptisms the baptism of water and the baptism of fire or the holy ghost it's really one complete baptism and there are two different emblems that we partake of that directly match correlate to that baptism by water and the baptism by fire with the Holy Ghost. So let's get into this here. First of all, I want to start off with something that I think is, is absolutely phenomenal in chapter 17. It is one of the greatest lessons for acquiring truth in all of Scripture, as far as I'm concerned. That, that we hear this over and over again about the signs and having faith first, and then the sign comes, not to be a sign seeker, um, but here Christ brings something home here, pretty, pretty much right between the eyes. It says here, right in verse 1 in chapter 17, Behold, now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked round about again and on the multitude, and he said unto them, Behold, my time is at hand. Okay, so he's, he's got to leave. And then he says this, I perceive that ye are weak that ye cannot understand all my words. So let me ask a couple questions here, rhetorical questions. How good of a communicator do you think Jesus Christ is? Right? How, how good of a teacher is he? And yet, and yet he says, I perceive that ye cannot understand all my words. 
okay, there's a gap here. There's a problem. Even Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ with his wounds, there with these 2,500-ish people at Bountiful, right, cannot fully communicate what he wants to communicate, right? Think about that. And then he says, therefore, go ye unto your homes and ponder upon the things which I have said. Okay, there is a process of how to really gain truth and understanding. Ponder upon the things which I have said and ask of the Father in my name that ye may understand and prepare your minds for the morrow and I come unto you again. Again, this is phenomenal to me, right? What a lesson this is. Even Jesus Christ teaching them is not the same as you going to your home with his words, pondering on them, and then being visited, asking to receive an understanding, and then basically being visited by the Holy Ghost to understand what is being said here. That's how it works, even with the resurrected Jesus Christ going over this with you. Now, he then says he's going to go off to meet with the other lost tribes. So what I find interesting with that is he's, he's visiting a number of different places, perhaps, at once here. Right? So, so he had his mortality in Palestine but he is visiting the Americas and then going off wherever else to another place that appears like it probably would be daylight during the nighttime here in the Americas. But he's going to a certain place to a certain people who are the lost tribes. Now, it's important to understand here that this group that he is speaking to, the, the Nephites, Lamanites here, at Bountiful are, are a very, very small group of the overall Nephite and, and Le, uh, Lamanite nation, right? There's only 2,500 people here of hundreds of thousands, right? So it could very well be the same thing. When we think about who were the lost tribes, you know, using our deductive abilities here, we can say that, okay, maybe he is going to a place, but it may not be to all of the lost tribes, we think of this idea that there's tens or hundreds of thousands in some group somewhere on the globe. That isn't really feasible, is it? And granted, this was a couple thousand years ago. But that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a small group of the lost tribes that he is going to visit, just as it is a small group here at Bountiful that he is visiting. Then he says, but before I leave, I, 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 my heart breaks for you. Please bring all of your, your, your sick to me. I, I, he says, I see that your faith is sufficient that I should heal you. So again, he's recognizing the faith first, just like he, even he's being the sign of everything, that he, and he's there in front of everyone. He still wants everyone to go home and ponder and pray about it, right? There, there's a process. So he says, I do see that you have the faith necessary to be healed. That's another message that is driven home here. 
The resurrected Christ is not going to just go and heal everybody. He requires faith. Healing requires faith. And then we start getting into this hierarchical structure here, the way that this is written by Mormon. And, and if we pay attention, we, we, we can see how this happens. And I want you to keep in mind, if you've gone through the temple, especially more than a year or two ago, um, the idea of hierarchical structure with priesthood, right? How something is repeated over and over and over again to drive home the point that there is delegation, that there is an order in, in the priesthood. There is Elohim, there is the Son, there is Peter, James, and John, there are disciples, uh, there's further priesthood, right? There's, there's, a, there's a process here. There is an order. He says here in verse 13, And it came to pass that when they had all been brought, and Jesus stood in the midst, he commanded the multitude that they should kneel down upon the ground. All right, so he's talking about bringing the little children to him. And then he starts to pray, and he says, Father, I am troubled because of the wickedness of the people of the house of Israel. And then he himself kneels upon the earth, and behold, he prayed unto the Father. All right, so again, we get these different layers here of, of what's happening. Right now, as he's, as he's got the little ones with him, right, he's blessing the children, this is how chapter 17 ends. It ends in a, a, a vision of sorts for all the people, right? Which is what we would expect in a hierarchical uh, narrative here. It says, And as they looked to behold, they cast their eyes toward heaven, and they saw the heavens open, and they saw angels descending out of heaven. Right again, the angels fill a position in the hierarchy. And they came down and encircled those little ones about, and they were encircled about with fire, and the angels did minister unto them. Okay, so as I said earlier in the chapter here, that's, that's very common to see vision and, and hierarchy that's brought together. And oftentimes it's, it's very much grounded in temple imagery. And then, of course, at the end here in 25, we're told, they were in number about 2,500 souls, and they did consist of men, women, and children. Right, So it's a very small group that we have here uh, listening to Jesus Christ right now. Right? Now, in chapter 18, we get the reinstitution. Some might say the institution or the reinstitution of the sacrament. I'm not going to go into what I mean by that necessarily right now, but... This is, again, it take, keep in mind, it's kind of the idea of a new creation that is happening here. Everything is being brought together anew and under, the, under Christ, just like it was in Palestine, right? Jesus Christ is not just the Savior, even though that's kind of everything. He's not just the Savior. We do not want to forget that he is the head of a dispensation. And when we say dispensation, it is exactly that. It is a dispensing of truth and authority and ordinances, priesthood, order, right? Covenant, especially the Abrahamic covenant. And so these things are all being reinstituted under Jesus Christ. He is the head of this dispensation. 
So he says, And it came to pass that Jesus commanded his disciples that they should bring forth some bread and wine unto him. And then he commands the multitude to sit down. And then we get a, a clear explanation of, of the sacrament here, right? He says, And when the disciples had come with bread and wine, he took the bread and brake and blessed it. And he gave unto the disciples, right, not to the multitude. He has it. He breaks it. He's acting as the priest here. He gave unto the disciples and commanded that they should eat. Right? Think about how we partake of the sacrament where we have the person in authority in the congregation partake of the sacrament first. There's an order there. Right? And then when the disciples had eaten and were filled, he commanded that they should give unto the multitude. See, why the specifics on this? Again, it's order. It's, it's, it's very important to the gospel. This is a reinstitution. We're going to get it all right. So the disciples then take the bread and water, the bread and wine, and they give it to the multitude. And then he comes back again and he says, now we're starting off with authority here. This is going to be the Aaronic priesthood authority. Now, Nephi here, Right? The current Nephi here, he obviously has the Melchizedek priesthood. So why is he now going to be ordained just to be able to do the sacrament? That's an ironic priesthood function. Again, it's a recreation. Everything is being started new. So he says, Behold, there shall one be ordained among you, and to him will I give power that he should break bread and bless it and give it unto the people of my church, unto all those who shall believe and be baptized in my name. Okay, so it's, it's going to be, he's, he's going to give the authority to one of the disciples. And then it's very clear. And even as I have done this and broken the bread and blessed it, you're going to do the same thing, right? That person who is ordained will do the same thing. Then he says in verse 7, And this ye shall do in remembrance of my body. All right, again, keep this in mind as we go through this with the higher and the lower laws. His body is the lower law. His body is carnal. His body is mortal or was. And he says, This will be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. Again, we've talked a lot about remembering in the Book of Mormon. That's a major message. And here we, we see that the, the major message, one of the major messages of the sacrament on with both emblems is a remembering, right? Which means a focus. To me, that means a focus back to the higher and lower laws, a focus back to the physical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy of Gethsemane, where he spilled his blood. And then he says, If you always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. That's part of the sacrament prayer. Right? So, in other words, remembering is part of, uh, consider that kind of part of the lower law. Right? It's what we do. And in return, we receive the spirit. So then he goes on to the wine. Right? And he says that they should take the wine of the cup and drink of it. This is the disciples only. 
and that they should also give unto the multitude that they might drink of it, right? So from one level to the next, perfect reinstitution of the covenants and the ordinances. Right, then he gives an explanation here of the wine. He says, and this ye shall always do to those who repent and are baptized in my name. And ye shall do it in remembrance of my blood, which I have shed for you. Right, so this is a, a memory here of, of his suffering, not on the cross necessarily, although he did suffer there too, with the anguish of the sins of the world. But this is about Gethsemane, right? This is about taking the sins upon him. That ye may witness unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. So we get the function of the sacrament, right? Which is, is a, a recommitment to our covenants at baptism that is both water baptism and fire baptism, right? It's both. And to remember. And if we can remember what he's done, then we can have the spirit. That's the key. We have to remember. We have to focus on what he's done. Now, he says that if we do this, that we will be built upon his rock, right? Instead of being on a sandy foundation. So, how, you know, how important is it for us every week to partake of the sacrament? How important is it for us to remember and to renew our baptismal covenants, to take on his name? I would also recommend, and I've talked about this before, that, that you think of the rock in, in terms of uh, the Son of God, in terms of the temple, in terms of where you're going to, right? Kind of like the cornerstone of the temple. Even the perhaps the Ben-Ben stone of the Egyptians, the stone that is the represents the earth that rises out of the of the great abyss, the great flood in the creation. Right? It's it's about order, it's about priesthood as we're going over here. You know, what what are you built on? Just as he brings up when he's talking about Peter, right? Peter is the same, we get the word Peter from the same source of petrified, right? Something that is made into a rock. It's about the priesthood. That's what he's covering here. Makes all the sense in the world to bring up being built upon his rock. Now, another part of this order here that we're getting, which is sourced here basically with the Savior, is not only is it a process of order and hierarchy and delegation that we participate in, Right, that's an important part of it. We participate in this. But it's also an example of example. <laughs> right? It it also is telling us this is what the Savior does, this is what we do. Right? We should do the same as him. We are a layer or two or three or four or five away on certain things with him. But we are to do the same thing that he does. 
And that is one of the beauties of the doctrine of Christ. When we fully understand it, it is not just that he paid the price for us, it's why he paid the price for us. So that we can grow, so that we can have a fullness of glory and joy. And he says this here in verse 16, And as I have prayed among you, even so shall ye pray in my church. Right? So this, watch what I do, and then you go and do the same. He says, Behold, I am the light. I have set an example for you. So if we think about Genesis and the creation story and the light coming through the darkness and the void and the abyss, the deep, right? That is the Savior. That is God. That is the Spirit. That is order and intelligence. And it's the light that we are supposed to follow. We get the same example in John 1, and that's very important here coming up, right? The same kind of talk that John has about the Word, the Logos, being made flesh, and then his intercessory prayer, the Savior's intercessory prayer in John 17, right? These things are brought together in a common theme. John, to me, is pulling very closely to something that, that Mormon likely has here as well. And, and perhaps Jesus here is pulling from as well. That has to do with the creation, that has to do with order and light and being one. He tells us here in 24, Therefore hold up your light, that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up, that which ye have seen me do. Behold, ye see that I have prayed unto the Father, and ye all have witnessed. And then he says this, and this is now again that idea, so we're to do that, now we're to go and turn around and do the same to our fellow men. He then says, and ye see that I have commanded none of you should go away. Right, in other words, follow my path. But rather have commanded that ye should come unto me, that ye might feel and see. Right, this is temple imagery here to me. The path of the temple. You have the gates of the temple, that's baptism, and then going in through the pathway, through the endowment, this is the path, the narrow path, headed toward the tree of life, perhaps headed toward the rock. Even so shall ye do unto the world, and whosoever breaketh this, his, this commandment suffereth himself to be led into temptation. Okay, so again, we're all to do this, regardless of priesthood or anything else. We follow his example, and then we turn around and we ourselves become the light to the rest of the world. All right, and then all the way down in 35, right? Now I go unto the Father because it is expedient that I should go unto the Father for your sakes. Again, it's just, it's that constant, uh, um, he's being an, inter, an, an, an intercessory for us, right? And he's showing us how that fluid hierarchy works. He needs to go to the Father. He has something he has to look to also, just like we look to the Savior. And he has to set an example for us. But before he goes, he says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of these sayings, he touched with his hand the disciples. All right, think about 
a priesthood ordination here. The disciples which he had chosen, one by one, even until he had touched them all, so this is all 12, and spake unto them as he touched them. And the multitude heard not the words which he spake. Therefore they did not bear record, but the disciples bear record that he gave them power to give the Holy Ghost. And I will show unto you hereafter that this record is true. So this is the Melchizedek priesthood, right? So up above here at the beginning of the chapter, it's the Aaronic priesthood that is given. The ability to bless the sacrament, right? So that we can remember him and receive the Holy Ghost. Here at the bottom now, it is the Melchizedek priesthood that they received. And again, all of these disciples may have already had the Melchizedek priesthood. Doesn't matter. It's going to be reinstituted from scratch. So we have the bread, and then we have the wine. We have the Aaronic priesthood being given, and then we have the Melchizedek priesthood being given. We have the higher and lower laws here, given in both contrast and in a synergetic style here, as always. Right, the sacrament and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Baptism by water and baptism by fire. So then the Savior ascends again to heaven at that time. Now finally here in chapter 19, we continue on with priesthood ordinances and this higher and this lower law. And this next day here, Nephi gathers everyone. He gathers the 12 disciples, the multitudes that are there, the multitudes has grown, right? Because a lot of people have now take turns as the light and gone out all night and run and gotten other people, other villages, other cities, and more, more of the, the, the Nephite, especially population probably, and brought them back to Bountiful. So there's a much larger multitude today. And so they break off into 12 different groups, each led by one of the 12 disciples. And then again, you know, beating a dead horse here. They go through the same thing. Verse 6, And the twelve did teach the multitude, and behold, they did cause that the multitude should kneel upon the face of the earth and should pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus. All right, and then the next verse, And the disciples did pray unto the Father also in the name of Jesus. And what are they praying for? They're praying for the great precious gift of all receiving the Holy Ghost. So there's a process to go through that first, right? Well, we're going to reinstitute that process here. We're going to start from scratch. Verse 11, And it came to pass that Nephi went down into the water and was baptized. Of course, he had already been baptized. He's going to be baptized anew. And he came up out of the water and began to baptize others. So first he does it, then he's going to go out and baptize others. And he baptizes the 12 disciples. And then the Holy Ghost did fall upon them. What does that exactly mean? I'm not sure exactly how that would happen. Is that a natural thing? Is that an ordinance? But it says the Holy Ghost did fall upon them and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then we get the angels coming back down among the multitude and ministering unto the people. Again, part of that vision of hierarchy here. And then finally, Jesus, after the angels come, 
right? Now we move more to the center, more to the core. He comes and stands in the midst of the multitude and ministers unto them. And then what does he do? He commands the multitude that they should kneel down again upon the earth. And then also that the disciples should kneel down upon the earth. Right? Mormon is always separating this. Jesus is separating this. All of the steps of the order. And then he commands the disciples to pray. And they did pray unto Jesus. This is different here. Calling him their Lord and their God. They're praying to Jesus there in a manner of worship because he's there with them. It's not a prayer as we think of it. Right? He's there with them. And then Jesus departs from the, in the midst of them and he goes off a ways and bows himself to the earth. Right? Again, think about Gethsemane, right? The, the group of disciples all go up toward the Mount of Olives and then eventually it's the 12, more than likely, and then eventually it's just Peter, James, and John, and then finally it's just Christ that ends up by himself. Same idea here, same thing happening. And then we're told in 22 exactly what I had said. It says, they pray unto me, this is Jesus speaking to the Father, because I am with them, right? So it's a, it's a form of worship, but it's not a prayer as we would think about praying to the Father. Now here, we're going to start getting into a little bit more of a theme of John 17. And it's a good idea if you took a look at that chapter, the intercessory prayer there, where we understand more about what it means to be one with God. This is where we get a lot of um, talk from Christianity broadly, right, of creedal Christianity, about the Trinity. Because we're told in John 17 that Jesus and the Son and the Father are one, right? They're one God. The problem with that explanation and understanding is that Jesus then turns around, just like we're going through the hierarchy here, does the same thing in John 17 and says, I'm praying for my apostles here. And I pray that they can also be one with us just like you, Father, and I are one. So unless you think the 12 apostles are being brought into the Trinity somehow, right? that idea of one God being a Trinity makes zero sense. right? When they're talking about one God, they're talking about one purpose. They're talking about a, a different idea of probably echad, which, which is Hebrew one, which really means more of a unity. And that, that was even, even Hellenistic ideas of one, oneness, meant unity as well. We think of the idea of Adam and Eve, right? Where Adam needs to leave his parents and cling on to his wife, and they become one flesh, unity. So he says here in 23, And now, Father, I pray unto thee for them, and also for all those who shall believe on their words, right? That's the next layer, that they may believe in me, right? So again, if we're thinking of hierarchy here, we see he's going out, he's touching each of these groups here that's getting further and further away, but it's bringing them right back to himself. That's how this works. That they may believe in me, 
that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one. Right? So, fluid hierarchy. Even though there is separation of layers in different ways and authority and, and message and time period and genealogy, all these layers in a hierarchy, ultimately it is a fluid hierarchy because we can all become one. We are all given the opportunity to be co-heirs with Christ. And then he finishes off this chapter here again with this idea of faith and signs. It says here in 35, And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying, he came again to the disciples and said unto them, So great faith have I never seen among all the Jews. Wherefore, I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. Right again, there's a law in place. Jesus can't break the law on this. Faith has to exist. Verily I say unto you, there are none of them that have seen so great things as ye have seen. Neither have they heard so great things as ye have heard. So in these few chapters here and throughout the visit of, of Jesus Christ here, the resurrected Jesus Christ, we see this hierarchical structure that is painstakingly divided up layer by layer by Mormon and, and by Jesus Christ. There is a reason behind it. It is, this is how it's got to be. It has to be reinstituted exactly the way it needs to be done. And so when we think about temple experience, for example, and that idea of hierarchy over and over and over again, right, where we get the different layers of this order, of this priesthood hierarchy in place. It's just drilled home to us. The same thing is put in place here. This is like a new creation. It is a new dispensation of the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of the order of the priesthood, the fullness of its covenants and ordinances. And it's got to be done exactly right. I'll talk to you next time. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.